Welcome to the Invest Like a Boss podcast. I'm Sam Martz. And I'm Johnny FD. We're self-made entrepreneurs who invest our own money and use modern technology to invest like a boss. Join us each week for exclusive interviews with our network of modern investors, business owners, and multimillionaires to discover new ways to invest our hard-earned cash. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Invest Like a Boss. This is episode five. And on this episode, Johnny is going to get on the phone with Dave Steiner and talk about Roth IRAs, retirement strategies. Johnny, as we know now, just sold his dropshipping business and got a nice paycheck. And Dave is going to give him a little bit of advice on how to invest that and to plan for retirement. So Dave actually um, emailed me out of nowhere. He was a listener of the Travel Like a Boss podcast as well as a reader of my blog. And he's wanted just to give me advice. He said, Hey, Johnny, you know, I saw that you you had a big exit. uh, And here's what I would advise you to do with your 60k that you got. And he had mentioned something called a SEP IRA, which I've never heard of before. But basically, it's a simplified self employment retirement fund. And the benefit of it is I can put uh, up to 25% of my earnings from this year into it and not pay tax on it. Mm -hmm. Uh, do you know too much uh, any, anything about that? I don't know much about a SEP. I have a I have a Roth IRA and a traditional IRA, so I can relate on that stuff. Um, the SEP's slightly different, but it was definitely interesting to hear him talk about it. And you seemed at the end of the episode very very keen to do that. Is that something you're you're still inclined to do? Yeah, I'm actually. I just filled out the application through Vanguard today. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. having a bit of trouble actually figuring it out. Um, it, it's a little bit complicated to be honest. And actually, so I'm emailing both um, Vanguard again as well as Dave to kind of just ask their advice on how to set it up. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, it makes sense, right? I mean, so like for your, so your Roth IRA, I have one of those two, but it only allows us to put in, what is it, $5,500 a year? Right, yeah. What What's your traditional IRA? What's that like? Well, the, the Roth is, uh, the way I understand, I always get confused on these things, but the Roth is you get tax deferral. Uh, you, you pay the tax. So let's say you get income, you pay your tax on that income, and then you put it into the Roth. So you can put up to $5,500, and then that grows tax-free basically for life, including when you take it out. Traditional is the reverse opposite, where you put it in tax free, and then it when you take it out, you pay tax on it. It's it's one, they're interchangeable. One of the two, I forget which one's which. Yeah, I think you're you're correct on that. So so for your traditional IRA, do you put money in every year, or did you only put in money when you had that big exit? No. So I, I've actually stopped. I stopped funding both IRAs several years ago, and and here's why. But everyone always tells you growing up, like put money in your IRA. If I could do anything different. When I was 25, put money in your IRA. That's what I always heard growing up. So I started doing that at a pretty young age. Like when I was like 20 years old, you know, I'd put in a thousand bucks here and there. Um, But my theory now is a lot different because I look at this as the U.S. government. These things are basically controlled and mandated by the U.S. government, right? The U.S. government is totally bankrupt. I mean, and we no one has any idea what's going to happen to the debt. But one one theory that I always had is there's literally trillions of dollars in IRAs in the USA. It's only a matter of time before the US government makes some type of play for that. And cards that were shown very recently uh, in one of Obama's uh, State of the Union addresses, he announced a plan called My RA, My RA, which allows which basically is an incentive for you to invest your IRA into U.S. treasuries. And it's just like, it couldn't have been foretold in a better way. But, you know, if if you look back to the history of the U.S. government, every type of tax or anything they've ever put into place, like Social Security, it was instituted at like 1%. And they said they promised they'd never raise it. Now it's like 3% and whatever, 5%. It goes up like almost 
every few years, right? And now people our age, if, we're, if we get any social security, we'd be lucky. So I just don't trust the US government for the next you know, 30 years uh, with my retirement accounts. I think some, some way, some form, they'll make a play for it or they'll move the age back from like, whatever, what is it now, 57 or 59 and a half, 59, they'll move that back to like 67 by the time we're old. So I just, I'd rather do other things with my retirement money and find other ways to grow it than to put it into a a government mandated savings account. Yeah, you know, that definitely makes sense. And I'm I'm glad that we're talking about this. So we can kind of see both sides of it. Um, You know, I think you're, I could definitely see that happening. and, And, you know, Quite frankly, it, it's sad because no, none of us actually knows what's going to happen. And right. growing up, you know, I think we already knew, you know, just even as as kids, that the Social Security fund was was at risk. Um, so none of us were really counting on Social Security bailing us out when we retire. So now we have to look for those other things. And and you're not paying, you you don't pay Social Security tax right now, do you? No, uh, you know, not since I I had my last corporate job. So that was right. since 2008. So that's that's great for us, you know. But imagine if you're in the U.S. paying Social Security tax. Like I would hate seeing that happen every single month because who knows if you're ever going to get that money, right? Yeah, that's crazy. And so I mean, that's kind of another big reason to, to be self-employed. So mm-hmm. you don't have to deal with that. And with the SEP, it was other thing. So in the SEP, you're you're not paying tax now. You're putting the money in without paying tax. So essentially, it's tax deferral, right? Yeah, correct. So there's there's always the other th- the o- the uh, the other school of thought on that is is you know what you're paying now, right? In tax, so like you know what tax rate is now. Mm-hmm. But the a lot of people say that the only way taxes can go in the future is higher. So you don't know what taxes could be when you're whatever, 55 or 60. I mean, taxes could be 50% or we could be in the Nordic states. It could be higher than 50%. It's one thing to consider is you know what you're paying if you pay now. If you pay taxes, you don't know what you're paying down the road. But there's a a very good chance it's going to be higher. That's very true. That's actually something I haven't thought about either. Uh, And it's crazy. You know, so the only reason why I was so excited about the SEP is because my income is going up now. Uh, Mm -hmm. So this year I paid, I think, close to... $26,000 $26,000 in taxes. And next year, it's going to be a lot more. It's going to be double that, especially yeah, with the, and, the store and, sale. And you're very lucky with, uh, you're getting foreign earned tax uh, exclusion, which saves yeah. you saves you twenty or $30,000 right there or more. Yeah. yeah um, I, I actually asked my, my tax account how much exactly I saved. And she kind of estimated, I think she only estimated like $12,000. Uh, mm. And I don't really understand exactly why, because it's the first... Hundred and I think it was one hundred and six thousand dollars was um, excluded from personal income tax. Right. But so you know, doing the math, it should have been like twenty thousand. But mm-hmm. you know, maybe that's something that we we need to look into more. Maybe we should have a guest on to talk yeah. specifically about that. Yeah, we should absolutely. Yeah, I was you know back into retirement. Like I grew up with uh, my my parents have very little retirement savings, if any, because they you know they always invested in in stocks and and things and. I think as so many other people, you know, got in at the wrong time, got got out at the wrong time type of thing. And, you know, my grandma had she owned a store in, in Palm Beach, a really small store that she bought in like the early 1930s. And she still owns it today. And that little store, it's in Palm Beach, like the real estate in Palm Beach has like become some of the most most desired in the world. Like that little store is that's like her baby, you know, that's 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 been her retirement for so long but it also gives her a lot of like pride you know it's something she's too old to work now but that's her like people know oh you know she's she's the owner of that store it's like it's um her prestige so i've always kind of looked that way at towards retirement is like 
if you just have money when you retire, you're bored, right? You still want something to do. No one really just wants to retire and like read a book for 30 years. So like I've, I've always wanted to, to acquire a really nice piece of property. And that's, you know, fixed income. If you buy in a good area, like a university or downtown or, or someplace that's, that's definitely going to be desirable and in 30 or 40 years when we're looking to retire or so-called retire, that's kind of more like what I would like to do. Cause that also gives you something to do day in, day out. It, you know, you have to, to maintain the building. You can call it your own. You can see it, you can touch it. So that's kind of more like what I w- was looking traditionally for with retirement is buy, buy a really cool piece of property. And it's also something you can pass down to future generations. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. So if anyone listening to this has any ideas on what I can invest my money in pre-tax, uh, that way I can you know, just kind of limit my, my tax obligation for this year. Uh, mm-hmm. Please leave a comment on this episode. It's episode five of the Invest Like a Boss podcast. You can just go to investlikeaboss.com and let me know because aside from the SEP, uh, IRA, I'm, I don't really know of anything else that you can invest pre-tax money. Well, it's a good problem to have. Congratulations again. Hey, thanks, buddy. All right, so let's listen to the call between Johnny and Dave Steiner and they're going to go into a lot of detail about all the stuff we just discussed with Roth planning, IRA SEPs and all that other fun uh, investing stuff that we love to chat about here on Invest Like a Boss. Uh, hey everyone, this is Johnny, and welcome to another episode of Invest Like a Boss. Uh, I'm here with Dave Steiner. Uh, welcome to the show. Thank you, Johnny. Pleasure to be with you. Yeah. So uh, Dave actually just randomly reached out to me one day uh, through email, uh, talking about what I should do with my my sixty thousand um, dollar you know payday from selling one of my dropshipping stores, and he had suggested something called an IRA uh, SEP. And I was really interested, so I figured, you know, I'd give him a call and um, see, you know, see what kind of info he had for me. Uh, so, welcome to the show. Thanks, Johnny, and uh, I really appreciate everything that you do for the community, and it's very inspiring to listen to your ideas. And the reason why I wanted to reach out to you is because you've just achieved success selling your dropshipping store, and you had this windfall of sixty thousand dollars in addition to your other income. So, when you look at your situation for the year and your tax planning and your retirement planning, how can you optimize that so that you're setting up the foundation for the future and ensuring that that you've minimized your taxes? Yeah, I love that. And it's so cool that you just randomly reached out. Can you kind of just give everyone a little background on how you even found me in the first place? Sure. I, uh, I'm very interested in the travel genre. I do a lot of traveling myself. I went to iTunes and I was researching travel shows. And I went through a lot of them, and I found yours to be the most compelling. It because it 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 factored in travel and also the financials and creative ideas on how to make that happen with your writing, with everything that you've done in Thailand and how you started, how you started by fighting, and then just how you worked yourself up with the drop shipping stores and leveraged that into your different platforms and revenue streams. It's just really interesting. Well, I'm glad you like uh, the other podcast, the Travel Like a Boss podcast, and it's so cool to have this one now uh, with my co-host, uh, co-host Sam Marks, who's, I think he's down in uh, Phuket on, on one of the islands right now, so he can't join us today. But um, I, can we get, can you give everyone a little background on, on you know how on what you do for work and kind of how you're and, and financially, like how how like how did you get involved in all this? Okay, Johnny, I'm about 46 years old and I'm married with three kids. I'm an IT contractor. And the reason why I feel like I have the expertise to talk about this topic is 
I've been investing for over 20 years. And when you initially start with the investing, you won't see the results. 10 years later, you really won't see the results. And suddenly after 20 years, you look at your profile, you look at your portfolio, you look at when you want to retire, you look at how much you're contributing, your work prospects, and you realize that all the good work that you've done over the past 20, 25 years is starting to come to fruition. But you have to stick to three basic fundamentals. And if, if you talk about anything outside of these three fundamentals, then you won't meet your goals. So I also have a master's degree in finance and a, mas- and a, a master's in business administration. I've read a lot of books on the topic. Oh, nice. And, and what, I've really, what I've really come to understand is that the day-to-day fluctuations in the market, the year-to-year fluctuations, don't matter. These trends are just noise. They get people wound up, and they wind up selling when the market's high, selling when the market is low, rather, and buying when the market is high. Mm-hmm. So if you take, and we'll look at some statistics, but if you look at what happened in 2008, 2009, 2010, the markets just sank, and everybody just jumped ship. So they, they got hit twice. Mm-hmm. They got hit when they left the market at the bottom, and then they got hit back in 2011, 2012, when they came back into the market. And my approach is to just hold on tight, watch everything happen, and it'll go back up. So that's the first point. The first point is really just making sure that you're invested in equities. Mm -hmm. You you shouldn't be afraid of them. You can do it yourself. And that's the big thing. I talk to a lot of people. I talk to a lot of investment advisors, tax advisors. I'm not an investment advisor myself, and I'm not a tax expert. But what the main thing that I wanted to come away from this conversation is mm-hmm. that people can be empowered with armed with the knowledge to do this themselves. They can invest themselves. They can make these allocations themselves. And I'll go through statistically some of the expected results. We'll use your case study as an example. I, I love that. And I love the fact that you've been doing it you know, for yourself and you're starting to kind of see the fruitions of your own investments. Uh, just out of curiosity, what are, what are the type of things that you personally invest in? Okay. Uh, I, I have the benefit of working for a company where I'm exposed to lots of other companies. I'm able to observe lots of large companies, mid-sized companies, and small companies. And I put these observations into practice in my investment strategy. And back in 2005, it, it just struck me one day, the difference between a large company and a small company when it comes to investing. We can do things now that were just not possible five, 10 years ago. Johnny, have you ever heard of Moore's Law when it comes to IT computing? No, what is that? At every few years, the processing power of a CPU grows exponentially. Mm-hmm. So things like 3D printing, things that what, what you're doing with Shopify. These, these capabilities weren't possible five to ten years ago. And what this means is small and mid-sized companies are in a great position to outperform larger companies. So when it comes to your investment portfolio, it's more defined by, by what I'm not invested in rather than what I am invested in. So what I choose to invest in are large banks, preferably Vanguard or Fidelity or T. Rowe Price, mutual funds, small mid-sized stocks, not large stocks, 
because large company stocks, S and P five hundred, with which is the index of the five hundred largest companies, mm-hmm. these companies are tracked by everybody. They've already grown. They're what they call cash cows. You're not mm. going to see a lot of return from these companies. And if it's a long-term strategy where you're going to have this for 10, 20, 30 years invested, you want it to you want it to be lever- leveraged better with a higher potential return. Now, the flip side of that is you're going to have higher volatility, but you just need to relax when the markets go down. Nobody can predict it. Nobody can predict when you get in when you need to come out. You're not mm-hmm. buying and selling. You're just picking a strategy and holding it. Okay. So first step is you really need to leverage this in, in equities. And then you can counterbalance that people are saying, well, that's too volatile. What you can do is you can invest in certain sector funds, again, through Vanguard, which will counterbalance the impact of, of these small mid-cap company stocks. For example, I love this this uh, small cap index that they have. The expenses are low. It's about seven tenths, seven one hundredths of one percent. Mm-hmm. For every thousand dollars invested, you're paying about seven dollars per year in fees. That's exceedingly low. Mm-hmm. So, what you do is you, you 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 invest in maybe one or two other funds, like a nice real estate fund, or an energy fund, or a healthcare fund, whichever industries you understand or comfortable investing in you you put together a portfolio of between three and five of these mutual funds and then when you observe them every day you'll see that when when one goes up the other one tends to go down but in general they tend to go up well i like what you said earlier about you know investing in the total stock market instead of the s&p 500 and i actually never really knew what the difference was you know i, I think a few people have kind of just mentioned oh the S&P 500 is is you know is a majority of the stocks and the way that you uh, just described it it really makes sense that you know the benefit of investing in an index fund like VTI um, which is Vanguard's total market instead of just the big boys just the S&P 500 because the now you know the the smaller companies have a chance to kind of grow and and get ahead of the S&P right and what I'll do is in a few minutes, I'll go through some numbers and I'll, I'll prove that out, that this is this is the trend that's happening over time. And Johnny, I know that you had a specific question about the total stock market index. Mm-hmm. And let me explain the difference. So the S&P 500 fund invests in what's called a weighted average of the top 500 companies. So if Apple's the number one company in the S&P 500 and it makes up, let's say, 5% of the total market capitalization of all those companies combined, you'll own 5% of Apple. Mm-hmm. Now, whether you want to own 5% of Apple or not, you can't make that decision. That's, mm-hmm. that's what you get when you get the weighted average Vanguard S&P 500 fund. Now, when you, now, you leave the world of the top 500 companies and go into this total index, and there you're invested in roughly one-third, one-third, one-third proportion of large companies, mid-sized companies, and small companies. So that's actually more diversified, and it's not very redundant because you're broadly invested in the entire stock market. Definitely makes sense. Yes, so right now, uh, most of my investments are just in VTIs, so I don't own own any any shares in the S&P 500 at all. Okay, but by being involved in the VTSI fund, which is the total index, you're inherently one-third 
in the S&P 500, whether you like it or not. Oh, it definitely makes sense. Okay. Okay. Now, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but here's what's going to happen over time. Your highs are going to be higher than the S&P 500 based on historical performance, but your lows will also be low based on statistical performance. Let let me give you an example. Okay. The total stock market index started in 2002, and the worst it's ever done was in 2008 at negative 37%. So the first thing you have to ask yourself is, okay, when I look at the historical performance of that fund, the total stock market index, would I be upset that year if it went down 37%? Would it, would it, would it put me off from investing in that mm. altogether? So knowing statistically that it'll go back up if you just wait, which it did. In mm-hmm. 2008, we're at negative 37%, but in 2009, it went back up to 28.7%. 2010, it went up to 17%, mm-hmm. and it's been doing really well ever since. Mm-hmm. Since 2002, it's averaged about 10.7%, not too bad. Yeah, that's the fantastic. S&P 500, yeah. The S&P 500 is going to be a little lower because those companies are very mature. Their earnings won't be as high, but it won't be as volatile. Mm. So that's, that's the difference. Okay, now, definitely makes sense. Now, if we if we take that out and and ask ourselves the question, well, if the total stock market index is getting us an average of ten point seven percent, then what if we went to just a pure mid cap fund or a small cap fund? And that's where it gets interesting. So this is where I looked at the returns of the of the top five hundred companies compared to the companies in the in the small cap index. And this is where, over the past 12, 14 years, it does make sense to look seriously at small companies as an index mutual fund. The returns will be higher. The returns will be more volatile. But when you look at the averages, the average over 10 years, the average over 20 years, the average over 30 years, and what's happening in the marketplace, what's happening in the economy, look, the economies are going to grow. People think that the economies are contracting, mm-hmm. that the that that we have a presidential election coming up, what's going to happen? It doesn't matter. You you look at the trends. All of this is happening in spite of the political environment. So we're having a, a very rich economy. There are wonderful things happening in the world that will expand the economy, things that you never hear about, mm-hmm. like the expansion of the Panama Canal, increased trade with Cuba, liberalization of the energy markets. All of these have a very positive effect on the stock market. And then when you factor technology on top of that, this is where the smaller companies are, I think, better positioned in the future to give the investor greater returns. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. I actually never really thought about it that way. I just kind of figured, you know, looking at the charts um, for, you know, the index the index funds like VTI or even, you know, the total stock market, even though there are uh, plenty of dips kind of throughout time, it just steadily goes up. So I, I figure as long as the world doesn't end, in in case we're after anyways, uh, you know it will eventually go go up. So it, it is a good time to invest. It is, and really, it, people just need to understand. Look, if I make this decision, I can't watch the fluctuations on a daily or even yearly basis. What matters is what happens over ten, twenty, thirty years. Mm-hmm. So what happens today is irrelevant, and your overall profile will be much much improved if. If you take an open view of smaller companies, yeah, it definitely makes sense. Mm-hmm. 
wherever somewhere and somebody professes to be an expert stock picker where they say, oh, I'm going to buy Apple or Facebook or Twitter. Those are all companies that everybody's heard of. And and that's that's just not looking at all these small companies that you never heard of, that you would never even know about that are in these smaller indices. Mm -hmm. And that's why I like them so much. I'm not picking funds. I'm not studying fundamentals. I'm just picking an approach and moving forward. So the the three uh, Johnny, the three principles are number one, the equities. Number two, keeping the expenses low. I can have a great strategy for picking a mutual fund, but if the underlying expenses of the mutual fund are high, then I won't meet my objective. Mm-hmm. Now, what does that mean for the average investor? Let's say you work for a company, and that company offers a, a 401k plan. Well, if the 401k plan is not offered by Vanguard, Fidelity, or T. Rowe Price, I would seriously consider going to my HR department and asking why. Because if your 401k plan at work is managed by a bank or an insurance company, chances are your expenses are going to be really high. So that's why I'm a strong advocate for these companies. Another excellent one is Tia Kref and Charles Schwab and Ameritrade and Scott Trade. Those are great as well. All those companies really... Uh, support point number two, which is keeping your expenses low. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. And the third point is time. And John, when I told you my story, how I started this over 20 years ago, mm-hmm. this is not going to happen overnight. And 20, 25 years into it, I look at the daily fluctuations in the market, and it could go up five figures. But I, I don't care. When I see on the news that the market dropped by 5%, I just shrug my shoulders and say, okay, well, tomorrow's a better day. No, no issues. Like you said, the world's not going to end. Mm-hmm. So as long as the world keeps going and we keep producing and we keep innovating, this is definitely the best strategy. So anything beyond those three points is just noise. So, you, yeah. so you've been, and I love those three points, and I think that they're, uh, they're definitely you know just a common sense must-have. So you started investing kind of uh, between two big dips how did you react to them you know, during 2002 and then again in 2008? Like, how, how did he feel personally? You know, because, you know, you know, I'm sure thinking back in hindsight, it's very easy and it's very easy to follow these things. But were you nervous at all? Oh, thank you for that question. The, I wasn't nervous at all, but, but I had to explain it to my wife. And actually, she now has an innate understanding of it. She doesn't have the finance background. That I have, but when I explained it to her like that, I said, "Listen, it's going to go back up. We're young, and this is one year in 30 years. So just sit tight, and it'll go back up." So it's hard because you you go out in a lot of social social situations. You have a lot of very educated and, and well-read friends, and they talk about this, but they don't really understand that statistically that it will go back up. And I, I think of it as a yo-yo. The lower it goes, the higher it's going to go back up. So let me tell you about a mistake I made. About a year ago, I thought the energy markets, they're just fantastic. The world's not going to stop using energy. As a matter of fact, more innovative drilling methods and and growing economies, the energy funds are just going to go up. So I invested in the energy funds, and they dropped by 40%. Mm. So this this is when I made a speculative decision. But it went back up. So now um, I'm only 10% off of what I put in last year. 
I just picked the worst time to do it. But I can't, there's nothing I could have done in retrospect. There are too many variables. It could have doubled. But what I do understand is because it went down so low, it's primed to go back up. And what happens is in America, at least when gas prices are low, people buy the large vehicles, and then our demand goes up and takes up the supply, and then the price goes back up. It's just going to go back up again. You know it is. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. And I guess the worst thing you could have done was to panic and sell, you know, sell those funds when it did drop instead of exactly. waiting for it to come back up. Yeah. And uh, a lot of my friends do do rib me about that. They they tell me that it was why so, did you do that? So, so you, you, you just yeah. have to sit So you're 46 now. Do you have uh, retirement plans? Well, I I do. So I have a 10 to 15 year plan. The reason why I call it a 10 to 15 year plan is because there's something. I have to factor in the children's education. So we have these 529s in America, which are absolutely outstanding vehicles for families to save for their children's college education. And with the cost of college education, maybe they take a gap here. And there are a lot of non-conventional ways to do it. But ultimately, it becomes an impossible, it, it becomes an impossible time frame to predict because you have to factor in, uh, I have to put three kids through college and, and how that's going to happen. So that it's, I would say between 55 and 60, but also it depends on the markets and, and uh, other things. Makes sense. So I'm actually curious, just kind of off topic, is do you still believe college is as necessary as it was when you're, you know, when you're growing up and going through school? No, no. And, uh, I know you have a lot of guests on your travel podcasts that talk about gap years and traveling and I know our friends in Australia they've embraced this concept of taking that year off after high school and seeing the world and I think that's wonderful so whether it's an immediate outcome of, 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 of a grade school education the importance I think is diminished there are a lot of wonderful skilled technical careers that don't require college so I, I think that's it's, it's not just the de facto option for people coming right out of high school that they need to go into college. Well, also, yeah, how old are your kids now? They're between 7 and 13. Okay, so, so they're way too young to even be thinking about you know these decisions yet. Right, right. But it, it, it does come to a point where we, we do, with the 13-year-old, we, we're starting to see where he might wind up. And uh, you just have to be open and, and make it happen for whatever he wants to do. But then when you have an 18-year-old child who's faced with a private school or a public school or maybe not going at all and taking a gap year, then that, you have to be open-minded about that. So I don't think the, that the automatic response is, we'll let the child go wherever they want to go. Well, because the parents funding a lot of this, they do have a lot of influence. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. So I guess it's, it's great that you're uh, planning for that, uh, you know, and so if all three of them do want to go to college, you, you're able to pay for that. But there's one other, Johnny, the piece that I wanted to talk about that people don't really look at from an investment standpoint, and that's the health savings account, which is a vehicle we have in America for fund self-funding and contributing to uh, our health care expenses. And another thing that you really help me understand is that the health care markets are now Global, and I have a background in healthcare administration and management and healthcare finance. What happened with Obamacare 
had a very detrimental impact on entrepreneurship in the United States. What happened to me in 2015 is I had my own company and I was doing really well, but my healthcare expenses doubled because I didn't qualify for the subsidy. Mm. So now here I am, a family of, of five, paying $25,000 a year for health insurance. And with my background in healthcare, I had I researched everything. There was no way around it. Mm-hmm. So then I started to realize that you really need to be thinking 10, 20 years ahead when it comes to healthcare and how you can fund it. So when I went to work for the large company that I started with in January, I have a health savings account. Here's the strategy. A health savings account is better than a 401k because you get the tax deduction. You can invest it tax-free. And when it comes out for healthcare expenses, you're not paying taxes on it. So you're getting a triple benefit. With a 401k or an IRA, you're only getting a double benefit. So what I've come to realize is I can use that contribution to HSA, not use it for healthcare, and let it carry over year, year after year, and invest that just like I would an IRA or a 401k. That definitely makes sense. And so one of the, the big benefits of being location-dependent uh, as I am is – while being out of the country for more than 330 days of the year, uh, which I have been, uh, I uh, qualify for being um, for for not requiring uh, health insurance or or um, Obamacare. So I'm completely exempt from that. And also, when you look at the affordability of the healthcare where you are, first of all, it's outstanding care in Asia, in mm-hmm. Thailand. I was looking at some of the relative costs you could get procedures done for about 20% of the cost in the U.S. So you don't even, do you even have health insurance? No, I don't. Uh, so I have travel insurance, uh, which which will cover, you know, like a helicopter lift if I have a scuba diving ac- accident in the middle of the, you know, middle of an island somewhere with no hospitals around, because uh, that would be extraordinarily expensive. But as far as, you know, normal um, health care, I have no insurance. And I actually had to go uh, to the hospital um, a few months ago because I tore a calf and I was in a um, I was in a cast and when I got the bill I didn't even bother to claim it with my travel insurance because it was so low it was it was only a few hundred dollars and I figured it, it's not even worth the effort of filling out this paperwork and you know you could just pay for it out of pocket. Okay, Johnny, here's a little known fact about HSAs that international health care is covered, including travel if you're seeking care outside of the country. Primary, if you're going outside of the country primarily for healthcare purposes, if you need a, an expensive planned procedure, the cost of the travel can also be factored into the health savings. Oh, great. Yeah, I definitely look into that. Yeah, because uh, medical tourism is, is becoming a huge thing, you know, especially as you mentioned, you can get great care. I mean, the hospitals I went to here in Thailand and even in South Africa, surprisingly, you know, you get such you know, uh, good one-on-one attention, you know, with the, with the doctor, he'll spend, you know, half an hour with you and answer all your questions instead of like in the U S where, you know, they have 10 other people, you know, uh, paging them at that very moment to, to get, you know, to, to get to the very next moment. Sure, Johnny. And those costs are, are very dramatic when you start looking at expenses, cardiac procedures. And when you look at the ratio of different countries, for example, in India, it's perhaps 10%. In, in Thailand, it's maybe 20% of the U.S. Or you can go to Latin America, 
Costa Rica, where some of these are about 25 to 30%. Absolutely outstanding hospitals. If, if anybody's looking at this option, there's a certification called Joint Commission International. So you can check the country and find a healthcare facility in that country. And they'll have been certified by this, by this organization, which is affiliated with the Joint Commission, which accredits U.S.-based hospitals. Okay. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. You know, I, I mean, there's so many benefits of, of being location-dependent, but I, I like how you're mentioning that I can kind of stack that, you know, along with tax savings. And, and that's actually what I'm most interested in uh, at this point in my life. Uh, and that's why I'm so excited to have you on the show. Okay. So, Johnny, let's get back to your situation. Did you want to talk any more about the HSA or the three points, equity, time, and, and expenses? No, I, I think you gave, gave a great overview, and you know, I'll definitely take a look at that uh, in my own time. But I'm really excited about uh, what you had you know, mentioned through email about the IOA, the, the SEPs, the SEPs. Okay. So, at this point, we can, we can talk about your uh, putting together something for you. And I know you said you wanted to go to Vanguard and actually look at the forms, and I could show you how you could you could do it yourself. Yeah, so I actually logged into my Vanguard account uh, to see, and, and you know, I see that they do have a uh, IRA, uh, an SAP. Actually, can you kind of just explain to everyone what that even is? Okay, so Asep, do you have any other employees, or is it just you? As it, a, as it's a, just me. Okay, SEP stands for Simplified Employee Pension. And it's a vehicle that the government en- enables you to participate in, which allows you to contribute up to fifty-three or fifty-four thousand dollars in a tax-deferred investment. And you can contribute up to twenty-five percent of what your company pays you. So let's just use some round numbers. Let's okay. say you wanted to contribute fifty thousand. That means you'd have to have two hundred thousand dollars in income. Okay, makes and sense. That, that means the twenty-five percent. Threshold. See, this is where somebody like you would need to talk to a tax professional because what's important is your marginal tax rate. Because you get the foreign income tax exemption, mm-hmm. your marginal tax rate is the highest rate. So, based on your income, marginal tax rates could be twenty-eight percent, thirty-three percent. So, if you make up to one hundred ninety thousand dollars, it'll be twenty-eight percent. If you're over one ninety, it'll be thirty-three percent. So, imagine. You're investing fifty thousand. That fifty thousand is only costing you seventy percent of fifty thousand. It's costing you about thirty-five thousand. Oh, that's a big you're difference. Fifteen thousand in your taxes. Okay. So would I qualify for this if I'm, you know, just a sole proprietor, or would I have to, you know, uh, get paid through an LLC and pay myself? How, how does that work? So, however, however you've established yourself as an LLC or a sub S. It all comes down to what you pay yourself because the set is really an offset against your income for retirement planning purposes. So you have the income of the LLC, the income of the subchapter S. You'll carry some of that income forward. It'll be retained by the company. And then another part of that will be paid to you. It's the part that's paid to you, which is factored into this calculation. Okay. So whatever you pay yourself, take 25%. And that's what you can contribute. So let's say that right now I'm, I'm set up just as a sole proprietor. Uh, I, I do have an LLC. I just haven't taken the time to move everything over to it yet. So right now, you know, it's ju- I'm just a sole proprietor uh, based in Texas. And 100% of the income is, is coming to me. Okay. 
So if 100% of the income is coming to you and you're declaring that 100% as salary, properly accounted for payroll salary, where you're paying all the all the contributions, for example, the Social Security, the state unemployment tax, whatever whatever you're paying yourself officially mm-hmm. is, is what's factored into that equation. Okay. So okay. This, this can be equalized towards the end of the year because, and Johnny, that's another point that a lot of investors, they, they wait until the end of the year when they've met with their tax professional and they've figured out how much they've made, how much they can pay themselves. Perhaps they pay themselves more at the end in December, and then that's when they determine how much they can contribute. And it's not an all-or-nothing proposition. You can do some of it now and some of it in December. But ultimately, you have until April 15th of the next year to make your contributions. Okay, that definitely makes sense. You know, what's funny is when I logged into Vanguard to make my account, they I, they asked me how much I want to contribute for 2015 and 2016, and they, they actually wouldn't let me put zero for 2015. I'm, I wonder why that is. So I think what you can do is tell them that you want to fund it later, which you want to set up the account now, and I think there's an option where you say fund later, and then that's when you have the shell set up, you have the account set up, and that's when you ascertain how much you want to contribute. So you can start with something small, and then really figure out exactly how much you want to do at the end of the year when you're planning your taxes for this year. Okay. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. So th- there's a couple of different types of IRAs. There, there's. Can, can you kind of briefly just talk, you know, walk me through what the difference is? Okay. So there's your, your regular personal IRA, and you could do, there's two flavors, Roth and traditional. So uh, this is also very important because with Roth, what you're saying is, I'll pay the taxes now mm-hmm. so that I don't pay the taxes when it comes out. So what becomes very important is what is your marginal tax rate? And this is where you need to have the tax planning figured out more, much more so than the investment planning. Here's the difference. In a Roth IRA, you pay the taxes now. It's accumulating tax-free, and there's no taxes when it comes out. With a traditional IRA, you get the tax deduction now. It's accumulating tax-free. And then at the at the end, you pay your you pay the taxes. So, for a young person who's in a low marginal tax bracket, a Roth IRA tends to be better because you're paying a lower tax rate now. In the future, you'll be in a higher tax rate when it comes out. So, if your marginal tax rate is on the lower side, a 10, 15, 25 percent, a Roth IRA can make sense. Okay. Or a Roth 401k. But so. If, in my my specific situation, would I even bother contributing um, the the fifty five hundred dollar limit to the Roth IRA? Or would I just try to put everything into uh, the the SEP? This is where you can look at doing a combination of both. So you can do up to your maximum allowable Roth, which would be as a as a single individual. I think it's three or four thousand. I have to double check that, but really the the majority of that would be in a traditional IRA. Because a SEP is a traditional IRA. Okay. SEP, Roth. Okay, that makes sense. Okay. So then you, but there's also this notion of, of converting. And when you're, a lot of people think that when I'm older, I'll be in a lower tax bracket. So perhaps when I'm older, I could convert. So imagine you're in your late 50s and your, your income is low, you're in a low tax bracket, but you have a lot of other savings. You could, you could potentially uh, shift, you can convert 
from a traditional to a Roth and take the tax hit all at once so that it's not coming up. The, uh, um, the Roth also has two major benefits. Number one, you, you can take out your contributions, not the earnings part, but the contributions at any time because you've already paid the taxes on it. So some people treat the Roth as an emergency fund, which mm. you can't do with the traditional IRA. And then the other point is what's called a required minimum distribution. With a Roth, you, you don't have to take it out at a certain point. With the traditional IRA, if you don't take it out by the year se- uh, 70 and a half, the government uh, penalizes you quite heavily. Okay, so, so that makes sense. So if I, so if I sign up for uh, a SEP, uh, how long do I have to keep it in there in, until I actually retire? So this step, pretty pretty much, your that's going to be until you're 59 and a half. And there there are some rules. For example, buying your first home, there are okay. some rules that you can when you can borrow against it. But mm-hmm. I'm not a big fan of that. So okay, you just you, you have 25 years. What, Johnny? How old are you now? I'm 34. Okay, so you have a little over 25 years before you can touch that. But in the meantime. The government is compensating you for that benefit by giving you the tax deduction and the tax-free returns. And then you could also do a little bit into a Roth, which you can treat as an emergency fund, and which really you could use as your last bucket mm-hmm. when you're in your 70s, 80s, 90s. That's something that will pass down to your to your beneficiaries much more easily than a traditional IRA. And also the government doesn't make you take it at a certain age. Okay. You, so... so- it sounds like this is this should be the plan for me, and, and correct me if I'm wrong. So I should uh, put, you know, I'm, I should max out my SEP uh, to take advantage of the tax savings. So 25% of my, my uh, all my um, income. Uh, I should max out my Roth IRA, which is um, you know a couple thousand dollars. I could put it in there and have that used as a kind of an emergency fund uh, as well. And then for the rest of my money, uh, then you know I'll still have. You know, close to seventy-five percent of my income that I can put into, you know, savings and and buy you know things like the total stock index with. Absolutely, absolutely. And this this is where you talk about the long-term investments. You really want to let that ride in the, in the equities and small cap, mid cap funds. And then as as the money starts to be required shorter and shorter term, that's when you take less and less risk. Johnny, there's one other there's one other very controversial subject which, uh, in the in the press and in the finance community, I, I really disagree with this. And it's the proper amount that you take out when you start withdrawing. Mm-hmm. Let's say now, fast forward, Johnny, you're 60 years old, and and now it's the reverse decision. It's how much do I start taking out? Mm, okay. Well, the conventional the conventional wisdom is you take out four percent. Remember, your investments are averaging eight to ten percent. You're taking out four percent. That that doesn't make mathematical sense. So, if I should be able to take out eight percent unless I reduce the risk of the investments. Mm-hmm. This is where a lot of people, I think, they really sell themselves short. But first of all, remember the government is compensating you to take the risk. That dollar that you invested is only costing you seventy cents. And when you work for a company that matches you. That dollar that you invest that's only costing you seventy cents is really giving you a dollar fifty. So, when it comes to when you take it out, how much do you take out? That number four percent is too low. Mm-hmm. Even in the same type of investment, you really can up that to six, seven, or even eight percent, depending on 
you're keeping the investments the same mm-hmm. and also your other revenue stream. So when you start taking money out of your SEP, uh, is and assuming that you're 60 years old, is there any any fees for that? No, no. But if it's a SEP and it's a traditional, based on the traditional IRA, you will pay taxes on it. So you you have to think about what what will my, will my tax rate be? And in some cases, it can actually be higher. And this is where your decision to move to Texas was brilliant because it's a low cost state. And you have to start thinking about: Am I going to move somewhere where I'm in a state with a lower tax rate? But yeah. when it comes to actually withdrawing it, uh, you, you can withdraw. I think six to eight percent safely if you keep the investments the same. Mm-hmm. Remember, when you're 60 years old. Hopefully, you'll still have 30 years left. So if you pull back and, and reduce the risk, put it into something more conservative, mm-hmm. then your, your growth is going to diminish, and it, it somewhat defeats the purpose of it all. Okay. Hmm. I mean, there's so much to think about. It, it's pretty you know crazy that I'm even thinking about this now. I, I would say most you know people who are in their you know early 30s, it's, it's so far ahead in our future that we don't even think about it but in reality it's really not it really isn't that far ahead right and that's you have and that's the mindset that i've adopted it's i try to look 10 to 20 years ahead where do i want to be 10 to 20 years from now and then i try to plot the course now that's what i did in my 20s now in my 40s i'm starting to think about okay what's the exit strategy what am i going to do for health care what am i going to do for the kids education and when you start the planning it, it really comes to fruition. You really see the results. So that that's just a, the mindset. It's not it's not so much what am I going to do today for the next ten years. It's more thinking ten years out. Okay, that makes sense. So, how much would I actually need to retire? Assuming I'm taking out four to eight percent, you know, when I'm sixty, and I want to be able to to live a normal life and not 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 work anymore. Like, how much do I need to aim to have in my in my SEP? Well, I actually plotted this on a, on a spreadsheet. So let's say, okay, you said you're 34 now. Mm-hmm. And now when, see, so you're different because you have many revenue streams. And I don't think any somebody like you would necessarily stop working. But when would you have enough that you could comfortably just pull back on everything? Mm-hmm. So let's say at 34 years of age now, you stop working when you're 60. You put this 60000 in. Let's just say it's 50, just for calculation purposes. Okay. And the other assumption is you're just putting in about 18 grand a year for the next 25, 30 years. Mm-hmm. By the time you're 60, you'll be looking at 2.5 to $3 million based on an 8.5% return. So right now, at the age of 34, you put that 50 in, and then you contribute... I just modestly, conservatively said you're putting in about 22000 23000 a year. Okay. For the next 25 years, you'll have about $3 million to work with. Nice. So I'm definitely going to be a millionaire by the time I retire. Now you'll be, now, hold on. Johnny, you're, you're Johnny FD. <laughs> you have a lot going on. You'll have, you'll have that much earlier. But, but based on pure investing, you'll be at about $3 million. Now, then the question becomes, well, then how much can I take out? Then you back into that number. If you go with what everybody else says and it's 4%, you're looking at pulling 120000 per year out of that. Or you can go up to 6 to 8% and now it becomes more like 180 or 200. Based on inflation, 
that would be roughly equivalent to 120 to 150,000 in today's dollars. So if I'm pulling 8% out uh, per year, wouldn't you know, wouldn't that completely run out then uh, in before the time, you know, before I, I die? I mean, because I, I, I haven't done the math on that, but it doesn't seem like that would last more than, you know, you know 12 years or so. so. Remember, if you keep the investments the same, you're going to be at 8 to 10%. Your, 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 con- your, your balance is really not decrementing to, to the point. You're always going to have seven figures. If you keep to 6 to 8%, your balance will never be less than seven figures. Okay, that makes sense. So as long as the you know the market continues to rise, uh, pretty much at the same rate, and I'm, I'm pulling out per year, then I should kind of stay stay steady. Right, and I'll and I'll send you the illustration of of how that's projected. I'll send you the numbers. Yeah, please do. I'll I'll, I'll definitely put that in the show notes of this episode if anyone wants to take a look at it. Okay, and it's very dynamic. You put in your age, you put in your current age, you put in how much you have. And you put in a conservative rate of return. In your case, it's eight point six percent. And we plotted you at about three million when you're sixty. Now, Johnny, if if the markets are a little more improved, which I think they are, but I've made this assumption conservative. And if you double your contributions, let's say instead of doing twenty two a year, you do forty a year. Now you're looking at some serious money at the age of sixty. You're literally looking at about six million. Very nice. Okay, so I I know you know you you put the number out there that the, the market is growing around eight percent per year. I mean, it's has that been the case kind of like th- throughout the last twenty years or so? Because I, I know the in the last year, um, you know, the the market's been pretty flat. Exactly. So in two thousand fifteen, the S and P five hundred only grew at about one, only returned about one point three percent, and the small cap index actually returned negative almost 4%. So 2015, it was flat. It's coming back this year. And uh, we have an election coming up, which is irrelevant, but people seem to think that that matters. I think um, I'm very positive on that. I think we're, we can safely assume with large company stocks, you're at about a seven to 9%. If you start to go into the small company stocks, you're looking at eight to 10%. Okay. Conservatively, people think that you can even make that go up more. So when you say that, do you mean um, it'll go up? I mean, is, is that is that kind of adjusting for the the years that it it's flat or it goes down? I mean, are there some you know were there some years uh, in the past where it's been you know over eight percent? Right. So the the S and P five hundred since nineteen seventy five, the best it's ever done is thirty seven percent. But the worst it's ever done is negative thirty-seven percent. Okay. Now, when you go with the small, the small companies, the best it's ever done is forty-six percent. The worst it's ever done is negative thirty-six percent. So you're going to see that volatility, but it's going to average out. It's going to smooth out. And then you have this notion of dollar cost averaging. Mm-hmm. It really doesn't matter when you're investing because when it's low, you just buy more. Mm-hmm. So it's counterintuitive. You actually don't care if it goes up because. You actually don't want it to go up because if it goes up, you're not buying as much. Okay. You want it to go down so you can buy more, and then when it goes back up, then it's it's averaging out. So okay. it all doesn't matter. So you're kind of just hoping that it'll stay low before you retire, so you can so you can own more of it. And when you do retire, you're kind of hoping that it'll it'll be a bit higher uh, by that time. Right. That's a good way to look at it, Johnny. But honestly, it's impossible to predict that. Mm-hmm. You just 
put your faith in the system. You know, based on history, this is going to happen. And you just have to sit tight, stick to the three fundamentals, time, equity, and keeping the expenses low. Everything else is just noise. And if you follow the three principles, then you will be a millionaire many times over. It definitely makes sense. I love that advice. So just so just thinking of the worst case scenario. So let's say, you know, exactly when we turn 60, we have, you know, the, the economy is doing terrible. It just happens to be at a dip. At that time, are you still going to take out, uh, you know, the, the four to eight percent to live off of? Or is, is does that change things? Well, th- this is where, Johnny, honestly, this is probably the most emotional part for people because they say, well, I can't work anymore. Now what am I going to do? You might pull back. You might go to 4%. Maybe you're not comfortable with the 8%. It, it's just, look, at 60 years old, hopefully you have 30 more years of life. So it's going to go back up. I don't see any issues, honestly, with going to 6%, but you may just want to initially pull back and just do a 4%. But it, in the big picture, it really doesn't matter what happens in one or even five years. Okay. You know, that definitely makes sense. I, I like that, where, you know, we can you know, kind of leave, leave it up to, to fate of the of the market and say, okay, we're going to retire. Uh, you know, we can either be very conservative uh, if the you know, economy is doing bad and just take 4% and just, you know, um, you know, don't do anything too crazy. But if the economy happens to be doing really well, we'll take out the full 8% and really enjoy our retirement, you know, maybe take some more trips. Okay. Johnny, after everything I've said, if some folks are not comfortable making these investment decisions, I would encourage them to go to any of the Vanguard, Fidelity, or T. Rowe Price websites. They're absolutely excellent with tools and articles and great understanding. But I'm also a strong supporter of it. If you think you need a second opinion, I'm not a financial advisor and I never want to be one, but there are fee-based, and this is the key, work with a fee-based that you pay on on an hourly basis certified financial planner you pay him uh, there's something called the garrett financial network that i heard is is absolutely outstanding and also with vanguard and also fidelity and i'm sure with t Rowe price and the other uh, companies they they also offer investment advising services so if everything i've said uh warrants a second opinion and i wholeheartedly encourage everybody to to take that second opinion that you have a lot of options for that I, I like that, you know, and thanks for that recommendation. So when I, so, so let's say, you know, I, I'm I'm all over this because I think this is this is fantastic. Uh, you know, as soon as I can, I'm going to open up my my SEP IRA with Vanguard. When I when it, when it comes time to choose uh, the fund to to invest in, can I just pick VTI, which, which is what I invest in now, or or is it different for for SEPs? It's the same, but this this is where, for example, let me tell you what I do. Mm-hmm. I have I have about 75% in small and mid cap. Mm-hmm. Then I do maybe about 10 to 15% in real estate. There's some a wonderful fund with Vanguard called the Real Estate Investment Trust. Okay. It invests in commercial real estate. It's it's a good diversification. And the third one is is some energy uh, sector fund and I do personally I do energy. The point about all these funds are, you have to take a step back and make sure that there's no overlap, there's no redundancy, mm. and try to put together something which makes sense. And then you have your your weighted average combined rate of return, and you have between three and five funds 
Notice, Johnny, that international stocks were not part of that. Mm-hmm. They, they've just been very real under underperformers compared okay. to the U.S. fund. And I can help you with that. So there's, and also if if you have a high value, Vanguard has a different asset class called Admiral shares. Mm-hmm. Admiral shares have even lower expenses because you you have uh, a higher minimum balance. So okay. it's more or higher balances in the institutional. So make sure you you find the Admiral fund, and I'll go through that with you. Okay. Yeah, that, that sounds fantastic. It, it, you know. I'm really excited to do this. I'm going to talk to my my tax accountant and just make sure that um, you know she's on board with this. And I'm doing it correctly, but I'm definitely 100. I'm just going to put 25 percent to her with the maximum of um, of my income into into SEP, just because you know I I don't want to get hit with the giant tax bill at the end of the year. And I right, figured, right. you know, this money that I'm you know I'm getting now, I'm I'm not gonna I'm not gonna use it for anything. It's just it's just going to sit into an account anyways. Okay. Excellent. And there, there are a lot of, I think that's the key is proper tax planning mm-hmm. coupled with proper investment planning and you'll be on a very well-paved, very tried and true proven path to success. I like, I like it. Yeah. It's, 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 it's fantastic. I, I really appreciate your, your time um, kind of coming on the show and, and talking me through all this. I mean, it's, I think it's amazing that having this podcast, it just allows me to open up and reach, you know, people from all walks of life that generally just really want to help each other. It, it's, it's crazy. Thank you, Johnny. And also with the information economy, really people can have the confidence to do these things themselves. You shouldn't be put off that it's a large number or I'm afraid to do it or somebody else needs to do it. Think about your own situation. Think about your family members. They may be in a situation where they don't understand what they're doing. And now you have an opportunity. I've been blessed with the privilege of, of helping a lot of friends and family go through these decisions. And it, it's really easier than you think. I like it. So if someone wants to kind of get more general knowledge for investing, are there any books or anything that you would recommend? There's not a book, but there's a forum. There's never been a question I wasn't able to get answered on what's called Bogleheads. John Bogle, the founder of Vanguard. There's a forum dedicated to Vanguard and John Bogle's principles of low-cost investing, and you, you really can get everything you need there. Every single question about retirement planning, healthcare planning, education planning—that's where I go for my information. Uh, I like that. Thank you so much for that. I think the, the first question I'm going to look up on there is if I should be taking my money out of Wealthfront because uh, I know they have slightly higher fees. Um, are you familiar with Wealthfront at all? No, what is it? So Wealthfront's a robo-investing uh, platform. Um, there's an, another popular one's called Betterment. And okay. they, you know, let me look up what the actual fees are, but it's 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 kind of a new age way of, it's, you know, they basically just buy you Vanguard funds, um, but they they make it almost like a, like a video game. It's, it has a beautiful interface um, and it, you know, allows you to do things like auto invest that um, like Van- Vanguard doesn't allow me to do. Uh, I have to kind of go in and manually do it. And instead of paying, you know, 3% fees, like in, you know, if you go through a uh, financial advisor, um, the fees are something like, let me take a look at it. It's 0.25%. That's reasonable. Yeah. It's interesting. Any 
well, if if you can use these tools and you're comfortable with them, I think they're great. With just all these capabilities that we have now, with, with the statistical algorithms and the predictive analytics and high-speed computing, this I, that's I'd be interested to hear what they put together for you. Yeah, I'll definitely have an episode uh, of that. So, so check it out on uh, Invest Like a Boss, the the new podcast. Um, if people want to reach out to you, uh, any way they can kind of get in touch. David Steiner, I'm on LinkedIn, and you can reach out and connect with me, and I'd be happy to answer any questions. Okay, awesome. I'll have a link to that uh, in the show notes. Uh, David, thank you so much for for being on the show, and and I wish you all the best. Thank you, John. Thanks for listening to the Best Like a Boss podcast. Join our mailing list at investlikeaboss.com to get exclusive access to our insider investment portfolios and our private members forum. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. Tell your friends and leave us a review in the iTunes store. It helps more than you know. See you guys next week.